The portal, the beauty, the glimpse. Thank you for making the greatest decision of your life. This is Long Story Short, a podcast by our stories at the University of Utah. We're here to share student stories and update you on all the most important info about the U. I'm your host, Talmadge White, and we're coming at you from sunny Salt Lake City. This week, we're interviewing Dr. Christopher Miller on the Great Salt Lake and the land art that surrounds it. Dr. Christopher Miller is a poet and an interdisciplinary scholar in the humanities with a focus on poetry and poetics, critical theory, and urbanism. His first book of poems, ARCH, is a writing through of Vitruvius's Roman Manual for Architects for the Contemporary Americas. Recently published scholarly work in Poetics Today, 20th Century Literature, and Modernism, Modernity has focused on transient culture, democracy, and its limitations, literatures of wars, and the intersections between politics and language philosophy. He is excited to be a part of the honors community here at the University of Utah. Enjoy our interview on the Great Salt Lake. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Christopher Miller today. Um, I took your class, Critical Landscapes, at the Honors College, mm. and I had an amazing time um, learning about the Great Salt Lake and the land art you know, surrounding it. Um, so I'm excited to shoot into this with you. Um, let's just get right into it. So Christopher, what makes the Great Salt Lake a unique ecosystem? I mean, it's a terminal lake. Um, so that seems to me like the kind of defining uniqueness of it. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason why I think uh, Nancy Holt and Robert Smithson were interested in it is because since it's a terminal lake, it kind of contains everything that flows into it. So it has a very interesting function as a kind of historical record of of the region, you know, because all of those like chemicals and and, uh, groundwater minerals that end up in the lake, they stay there, right? Right, yeah. And that's what everyone is so worried about with the dust, right? Because, like, all of those things are still there in the soil and have been sedimented over time. Right. So for me, that's, you know, I grew up in the um, northeast um, where right, water yeah. was always flowing. Um, things were always raining. Things were always melting. And everything was, was flowing to the ocean. Yeah. So you have a different, very different relationship to water in that kind of ecosystem because you see it as this kind of impermanent, um, constantly changing uh, terrain, you know, landscape. Yeah, right, because the water just kind of sits there, right? Like, a mm-hmm. lot of it kind of flows into it. Um, but I guess that's the biggest concern right now is that there are all these different chemicals and, you know, um, arsenic and just these different dust particles, basically, mm-hmm. um, where if the lake dries up, it could kind of unleash this, like, you know, all of this time, of dust, really, yeah. right? Um, so what's going on with it right now? I mean, part of the thing about it <clears throat> being a terminal lake is that sometimes it seems like it's a zero-sum game, right? Where yeah. you know where water is coming in, <clears throat> and you know that there's so many people who have claims on that water that's coming in, <clears throat> primarily, right, agriculture. Yeah. And that's something I think the state should really look at and think seriously about because from what I can tell in terms of what I've been reading about the um, incentives that the state legislature built in to actually get um, agri- so different people who own farms to sort of voluntarily um, release water into the lake and right. give up some of those rights. They've been very hesitant to do that. So there's a bunch of money that exists that farmers haven't been utilizing. So that incentive program doesn't seem to be working. But we know, right, like the more water you use to grow alfalfa, the less that's going to go into the lake. And right. because it's a terminal lake, right, water is only coming from a few identifiable sources. And, you know, many of those other, like, groundwater sources or um, rivers are also being claimed by, like, municipalities and, like, domestic use, although, like, statistically that seems, like, relatively insignificant in terms of the overall use of water. Totally. So, and I mean, you know, part of that gets to like, you know, look, Spencer Cox is from an alfalfa family. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons why he would defend that historical interest. Right. And, you know, I can understand, too, from like a farming perspective, like they've invested themselves in the land. They've invested themselves in a production process. They see a kind of historical right um, to that process. And you can't blame them for that. Yeah. But I think you have to like think holistically about um, how water is getting in because it is a terminal lake. 
Yeah. Um, and it's different than a lot of other like um, watershed systems in that sense. Totally. So it's like, you know, the rate, what I, I just read an article in the Tribune today that said the lake had risen half um, the distance it needs to come uh, to be considered a healthy lake. Oh, wow. I.e., you know, viable for the kind of ecosystem that people associate with the lake, like the production of, of brine shrimp and brine right. flies and the migration of certain bird populations and things like that. Like, we're only halfway there. Yeah. And we had just, like, you know, a record snow year. Yeah, seriously. Well, because the impression I got, too, was that this last year would kind of be, like, almost the saving grace for the lake, right, of, like, all the snowfall and you know, I think that was kind of the biggest thing is how mm-hmm. good the snow was, right, and yeah. how much it rose. But the fact that it's really only half of what it should be, it still mm-hmm. shows like, oh, there's still a lot to be done mm-hmm. to divert water, right? Um, so, yeah, it sounds like it's partially a climate change thing, but in big part, it's these alpha, alpha farms that are taking a lot of the um, water that would be diverted to the lake mm-hmm. and and creating some of these issues, um, so, Christopher, why do you think it's important to see the lake? Why do you think people should go visit the lake and see it in in the current form that it's in? You know, I am. I still feel like a visitor to this place. Mm. Um, I've only been here in Utah for a year. So, like, you know, those farmers have much more of a relationship to this place and to this landscape than I do. But one thing that's, like, immediately apparent, you know, when you – drive a cra- across the um, a good portion of the Great Salt Lake on the 80, which I yeah. used to a lot before I lived here because I would drive back and forth across the country because I was living in California and teaching in New York. Wow. Um, and I would teach in New York every summer at Bard College um, and then drive back to Berkeley where I was doing my PhD. And, you know, one thing that's incredible about it is just like this, um, the sheer expanse of it, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also immediately apparent when you go to the lake now, like we did, right? When yeah. you walk out on the um, the salt fields near the Bonneville Salt Flats that, you know, historically this lake used to be something much larger. Right. Um, and it's been receding for 15,000 years. Yeah, right. right. We're and just you can even it, you yeah. can even look up at the rock lines as we did, right, in our class totally. and like see where the high water marks were because they're still there in the rock layers. And I mean, what I love about this area is that like all the history is right there, right? Yeah. It's like in the soil, it's sedimented in the soil, but you can also see it up in the like um, sedimentary layers. Like you can see where the lake used to be. And of course, we're not going to get back to like the previous ice age or whatever. Um, Right. And we're not going to get back to Lake Bonneville. Totally. But I do think like even just giving somebody that kind of image of what the lake used to be in a sense of the kind of historical change over time. Um, is really significant. And also just getting a sense of like how Terry Tempest Williams wrote a really great op-ed to the New York Times. And Terry Terry Tempest Williams taught at the U for a long time. Oh, wow, yeah. um, And taught in the Environmental Humanities Program uh, here. Um, And is a really interesting um, kind of land rights environmental activist, um, uh, indigenous um, to North America. You know, she kind of puts in perspective like the um, sense that there's people who have had a relationship to the lake um, for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, right. And like, I think our relationship to the lake now is like um, pretty superficial. Right. Like not a lot of people go to the lake anymore. Yeah. Like there used to be people who would go out there and go swimming and hang out at salt air and things. And I've seen like historical photos of this. Totally. And I think that that's part of it. Like people don't have a kind of physical experiential relationship to the lake. It's just this kind of distant object yeah. out there. Um, and it is receding to the point where people can't like kind of recreationally use it or participate in it. Right. And I think that makes it harder to kind of advocate for it to some degree because totally. it's not like a, a thing people understand from experience. I get that same impression, you know. Um, and it does seem like in some ways the lake has kind of been left behind, you know, by uh-huh. society maybe. Um, like because I've seen a lot of those historical photos of like – all these kids playing in it, you know, uh-huh. and like um, my one of my ancestors like owned Antelope Island, which is always kind of like stuck with me of like, what did that used to be? You know, yeah, that, yeah, that whole yeah. area. Yeah. Um, but now it does seem like it's, you know, when I've gone there, not a whole lot of people do go there. Mm-hmm. But when I've gone there, I'm like, whoa, this it has the opportunity to be like a living 
breathing historical document. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really cool spot. Um, so you mentioned um, Nancy Hull and Robert Smithson earlier. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about them and how land art fits into this, into the Great Salt Lake? Well, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm not from Utah, right? right. And, and one of the things that brings people to Utah, certainly people who are like me, who are interested in art history and sort of critical thinking, uh, think of things like the sun tunnels and the spiral jetty. Because, yeah. you know, in many ways, those were both artworks where it was an attempt by a kind of outsider to this ecosystem to try to think about an artwork that actually participated in the sort of like environmental and also human history of the place. Yeah. So when, you know, and, and both of them, as, as you know, right, um, approached that process in really different ways, right? Um, Nancy Holt, when she thought of, conceived of the sun tunnels, she thought about it as like a kind of endeavor of, first of all, getting to know the human community that's here mm. in the yeah. Great Salt Lake, getting to know the different industries that are sort of situated around the lake, and then thinking about a form that she could give that enabled her to kind of collaborate and engage and have a dialogue with all these right. different people, including professors at the U, as, totally. as you know. Yeah. Um, she talked to professors at the U who helped give her a more precise sense of sun angles and constellation patterns that would be, a, that would be visible in the night sky at certain times, and then use those constellation maps as a way to sort of drill holes in the concrete tunnels, which she fabricated from uh, minerals uh, yeah. taken from the site. Um, and then uh, um, she put them together at a kind of like local concrete uh, manufactory. So it was all like kind of a very place-based process. Right. And that's the thing that I find really interesting about Nancy Holt in particular is that she knew she was an outsider, right? And she also knew that once she built this thing, she wanted to make sure that people who are from this place could participate in it. Yeah. So she set aside some time like every year where they would have a kind of like locals event Although it's funny because, as you know from going out there, it's hard to say how many people really live there. Right, um, totally. It's like very much the end of the tracks. Yeah. Um, and that's the other interesting thing too, right? Like Sun Tunnels is at the end of an abandoned set of railroad tracks. Yeah, right. And so like Nancy Holt at the time I think built it there because it had a kind of historical significance where people used to cross um, totally. the lake. And this is a place where people used to sort of work um, and live. Um, but, you know, she also wanted it to kind of change with the landscape um, over time. Yeah. And so now I think it feels like a, this, you know, kind of like remainder monument uh, to like a previous way of thinking or yeah. a previous way of living because it's just out there in the desert. And any form of kind of human settlement around there is not really apparent. Right. It takes a long time to get out there. It does, yeah. Um, But, you know, it remains a kind of, I think, an interesting way to kind of like focalize and frame certain perceptions of the landscape. And I think that's also something she was really invested in. Yeah. Um, Smithson is is a little bit, he had a different approach, right? He he wanted to make something that was inspired by um, the actual minerality of the lake, right? He was Mm. really fascinated by crystals and crystallization. Yeah. And so he tried to think of a kind of form that would be interesting to other people that was based on the kind of um, formal process of the way crystals form. And so the spiral form, he took that from like the structure of crystallization. But he also wanted to build it out into the lake with like literally just a bulldozer, right? Right, Where he just like plowed out rock into the water because he wanted to get people out into the water. Totally. Um, and, you know, the wild, we went we went there last this summer, right? Yeah. And the wild thing about it now is, like, the lake is nowhere near. Yeah, it's a walk for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a ways. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like the, the, the lake up there is kind of unreal now. Yeah. And it's unreal because of a human decision, right? Right. First of all, the decision to build a causeway and a rail, the um, transcontinental um, rail passage across that section of the lake. But yeah. then the very recent decision to seal off any water interchange between the two basically right. creates this like wild pink water, yeah. which he saw also, right? It was it was already pink. The, yeah. Whatever, um, and I'm, I'm not sure, I think it's like a kind of algae that makes it that pink color. Mm, yeah, that um, sounds right. Yeah. That can grow basically 
you know, there's basically no, as, as a, um, the biologist who came to talk to our um, yeah. class, and then also those guys that we ran into from the Department of Natural That's Resources. Right. yeah. They, I was amazed by their bluntness. They were just like, there's nothing about the North Lake that's biologically significant. Yeah, And that's the fact right. that they could just be that dismissive about, like, an entire body of water was amazing to yeah, me. Yeah, totally. But, you know, like, I don't think Smithson was interested in the biological significance or not of that portion of the lake, right? Yeah. He was fascinated by the fact that this weird pink water formation, which he wanted to get people out into, was to some degree created by um, a, a kind of convenient development decision, mm. which is just routing this railway right across the middle of the lake. Yeah. And, you know, he writes in, in the, his Spiral Jetty essay about the Golden Spike Monument, um, right. in which, you know, that became another alternate route just north of the lake. Um, they built another passage. And eventually that was, a you know, that or sorry, that was first. And then they abandoned that and used the straight, straighter path across the lake. Right. Yeah. Like he was just really interested in just like how these haphazard decisions of human development can radically change ecosystems. Totally. You know, well, and and we're I, living with yeah, that right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely I think it's interesting, too, because Nancy Holt and Robert Smithson, what they did was so timely in a sense, right? But it's also very timeless. Like when you, I, for me at least, when I went to sun tunnels, I'm like, oh, this still makes a statement about how humans interact with the environment, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and the and spiral jet is interesting because it has changed a lot, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but I'd encourage everyone to go check that area out, right? Because mm-hmm. the lake right there, it's so different and like it's not biologically natural right in a lot of ways but it is really cool and unique you know mm-hmm. um so yeah it's great to hear you talk about those so how did you become involved and passionate about land art originally well i uh um i studied architecture as an undergraduate and one of the things i was interested in is how people can think like architects but outside of the specific context of like building a home or building a courthouse or building a library right these buildings that have certain kinds of functions um and that involve a pretty elaborate negotiation in order to get designed and constructed um land artists are not subject to those same constraints um you know for better or worse yeah um i think like there's something valuable about that process of consensus and discussion that architects have to go through yeah i know you ask any architect and they're like you know what's the hardest part of your job and it's like over demanding clients you know yeah right (laughs) but it's like robert smithson didn't really have a client like he wanted to build something and it has a kind of architectural presence in the lake but he basically funded it himself um, and had, I think, some grant money um, to get the project going. Yeah. Same thing with Nancy Holt. Um, she ended up paying for a lot of the um, development of those sun tunnels herself. Oh, yeah. With the notion that, first of all, that gave her artistic freedom, right? Um, yeah. But she also kind of had a notion like, this is going to be historically valuable. Both of it, both of them have you know, been proven by history to be true, right? But yeah. they are able to think like architects and, and construct a kind of intentional design that organizes space that responds to a site and the conditions of a site um, and that um, thinks about um, the kind of materiality of what they're building in dialogue with the kind of material history of the place. And those were all the things that I was interested in about architecture. Yeah. Um, And I think like good architects are always hyper-conscious of everything that was there before they built something. Mm. Because often anytime, and you see this, right, when you walk around Salt Lake City, you see these like, you know, you know, kind of homogenous apartment buildings going up, right? Totally. Every one of those is only built because you had to clear something out that was there before. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And Robert Smithson and Nancy Holt, I think, recognize that basic fact of construction, right? Any act of creation, any act of construction always involves some kind of like prior act of destruction. Yeah. And I think like there's different levels of responsibility in thinking about that, right? Like to what degree is a building have to be an homage of what came before? To what degree does land art have to be a kind of recognition of how other people use the land before that art existed oh yeah and i think from what i can you know from what i know about 20th century art history like it's one of the areas of art history that is most explicitly in dialogue with those kind of um let's say um people call it site-specific art but i also Mm. think about it just like you know um kind of situated histories yeah they're very they're very much in response to situated histories well and it seems like what nancy holt and robert smithson did they really kind of channeled this like 
transformative part of nature, right? Where it was like, we're kind of shifting what's already there and paying homage to it in a lot of ways by the materials and the way they're constructing it. Nancy Holt with the constellations, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But then kind of giving it this new spin on it, right? Um, So Christopher, I'm curious what other artists might be doing, um, if you know any other artists that are doing things similar with land art or other artists that inspire you. You know, the first piece of land art I ever saw was actually inside of a room in New York City. Cool. Um, And it was a super cool, uh, simple gesture, really. It was by this guy named Walter De Maria, and it was just a room that he filled with dirt. And uh, it's just like this kind of ludicrous proposition, right? Because first of all, real estate is really expensive in New York City. Yeah. So the idea that you just have a room set aside full of dirt is just kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Yeah. But the same organization that actually is kind of the stewards of um, Sun Tunnels and Spiral Jetty, Mm. um, Diversity in the Arts, DIA. Okay. um, They uh, are serve as the kind of stewards of this piece. Cool. Yeah. Um, But. I went there um, on a just a field trip when I was an undergrad. Um, cool. In when I was in architecture school, we went to New York City and visited a bunch of sites. And one of my professors, you know, brought us there, and he's like, basically posed to us like, "Do you guys think this is architecture?" You know, yeah. and it was like a really interesting question, you know. And you know, we sat in the room for a while, and what was really cool is when you walked into the room, the atmosphere of the room was like so palpably different than anywhere else in the city. Wow. Because the soil was like kind of moist and kind of dank and the room uh, was fairly closed off. I assume they had some kind of ventilation, but it felt like pretty dank in there. And it just like was immediately apparent that uh, we weren't in like an apartment or any other kind of like functional space. Like we were just in an earth room. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool way to put it. And we like, we talked, I talked to them. I remember one of my um, uh, friends asked a really funny question. He was like, you know, how do you guys maintain the the dirt? Because, you know, like it's hard to convey how simple it is, right? Literally you walk in the room and there's just like level dirt. But one of the things that's also kind of like strange about it is Mm -hmm. that they rake it every single day. No. So it's like perfectly even. (laughs) That's so awesome. And the thing the thing that the guy at the desk told me, he's like, he's like, you know, like mushrooms grow here all the time. And we have to like rake out the mushrooms out of the soil. Yeah. And so it like actually is like a living environment that he created inside of this room. And so I think like, you know, that's the other thing about about any kind of transformation of a landscape. Yeah. And I, I would consider this still a transformation of a landscape, right? Where it's totally. like uh, you disturb something yeah. and like other things grow in it. Right, yeah. Life. In this case, yeah. like mushrooms or like, you know, people on tours. Um, yeah, that's like Being too, let yeah. inside an apartment building. Right. And I forget, I remember it was like we went in an elevator and I think the rest of the building was like luxury apartments. Wow, that is fascinating. The earth room. (laughs) Oh, that is so awesome. But that's just just another example. He also, Walter De Maria, also has a project out in, um, I think it's in New Mexico, um, where you have to commit to going out and staying in this house for, um, uh, I think, a whole night. Yeah. Um, And he basically created this object that attracts lightning. Oh, and wow. so you go there and you just get to watch like lightning repeatedly no strike way. this um, space. That is so cool. Yeah. I mean, to I've me. I wanted to go out there. I haven't yeah. made it. I now have two young children. It's pretty much impossible. <laughs> I mean, I think that that stuff really moves me because it's humans directly interacting with nature in a uh-huh. way where we can kind of become a part of nature in a, new, in a way that we're not used to, right? Yeah. Um, when kind of using our art and like going into transformation with respect for what came before, right? Um, mm-hmm. But with something like the soil in that room, it's like, it's kind of like that like quote from Jurassic Park, right? It's like, life always finds a way. It's like, I think it's <laughs> yeah. really cool to kind of get into that, you know, yeah. um, and get into that sphere. Um, so why do you think art is important right now when confronting nature um, or confronting, you know, the climate crisis. Um, I mean, I think this is in a lot of conversations of the U, mm-hmm. um, water issues in Utah and, you know, climate change. Um, how do you think art can be a vessel for change or a, um, a way to heal? Yeah. Well, I guess like formally, I don't see any difference between art and natural activity. Yeah. Um, mostly because, you know, um, I don't know if you guys have read in in the ENL program um, uh, the end of nature. 
essay. The End of Nature. I think it, it was written familiar. by Bill McKibben. Okay. Um, who's also like an environmental activist. Cool. Um, but he basically makes the point that whatever we think of as like a kind of undisturbed place or a place that's not shaped by human activity, that doesn't exist. Yeah. And it hasn't existed for a long time. So the idea that like there's these things that are kind of like developing completely independent of like human artifice or human intervention yeah. um, is mostly just a useful fiction or myth at this point. Right. And if you concede that basic point, right, that there's no such thing as like a space that humans haven't intervened in in some way, then to some degree, like there's no difference between the intentional activity of shaping something into an artistic composition um, and like the way that we actually engage with natural resources. Yeah. Because um, we think of them as resources right. for the most part. And so I think like, First of all, I always think it's important to emphasize there is actually not really a big difference between the kind of compositional process of an ecosystem yeah. and the kind of intentional activity of an artist, right? Yeah. Um, and I think like a lot of artists usefully now are thinking about themselves as not just like individual geniuses. And I think to be perfectly frank, Robert Smithson suffered a little bit from this. Yeah. Um, but think about themselves more as like kind of like agents in a system mm, and kind of collaborators cool. in a larger network of people. Yeah. And so I think like art does give you an occasion to also think about how creativity is always this kind of like um, systemic or collective or sort of network based process. Yeah. And, you know, that's no different than thinking about, you know, our place in a kind of ecological system or network. Right. And so totally. I think artists often also are very self-conscious about why they're making what they're making because mm. they have to be. If yeah. you want to get a grant, you got to make that very explicit. Yeah, that's like, a good If point. you want to make people buy your work, they want to buy it to some degree, right? Because right. you're able to talk self-consciously about why you produced it and what the kind of concepts, ideas, or intentions are behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's some artists that get so famous where they, it's like, intentionally distance themselves from those kinds of questions. Yeah. Or you have somebody like Andy Warhol, right, who right. kind of made a joke about um, that. Totally. And so he's super meta. Almost, yeah. Right? He's yeah. like, everything he did was just in the factory, right? And yeah. And, like, everybody else, he just gave them an idea and they made it. You know? Yeah. But, like, that's, like, one way of thinking about the sort of production of art. But I think these days, like... A lot more artists have to be self-conscious about um, what kind of networks of institutions and resources yeah. um, uh, that basically make the um, artistic process possible. Yeah, totally. Well, I love seeing – I love that view of seeing art and nature as something really close together, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, – I mean, one thing I've put a lot of thought into as well that I think the, you know, ecology and legacy program touches on a lot is humans, do we see ourselves as part of nature or separate from it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of touched on that of, you know, seeing ourselves as more a part of it, I think can lead to really cool art and really cool um, natural expressions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, so Chris, I'd love to just kind of shoot, you know, kind of shift gears a little bit and, um hear more about your background and um, you know you mentioned you did architecture as an undergrad so I'd mm -hmm. love to hear more about um, your career and also what your other major interests are I don't know the problem for me and it's been difficult applying this professionally is that I'm interested in too many things usually yeah and I can't really decide I mean I uh, part of the reason why I decided that I didn't want to be an architect um, was because I felt like there was so many other things that I needed to learn about. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like I got a good education growing up. I mean, I went, I grew up in a rural um, area in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, I went to public school and, you know, nothing against public schools, but um, I, and I very, very much believe in public education, yeah. as is the University of Utah. Right, yeah. Um, but for me, it was... I didn't feel necessarily challenged. Yeah. Um, and I think as a consequence, it wasn't until I got to college that I really like pushed myself to kind of define my curiosities mm. and sort of pursue them with some level of direction and passion. Cool. Yeah. So I was a late bloomer in that sense. Um, but, you know, like I think when I got to college, it was just like almost like too much. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I could learn about all these things. Yeah. And, and so as soon as I, I I kind of like developed that more like fundamental like curiosity and hunger for just learning. I realized, you know, probably my junior – actually, when I, I entered the Honors College as a junior. Oh, cool, um, when yeah. I was, when I was an undergrad, and I started working on a thesis. Yeah. Um, and I was like, this is so fun. I was like, I 
and then I found out about graduate school. You know, I didn't grow up in a kind of family where people, a lot of people went to college. Yeah. Um, a lot of people talked about um, higher education as a process or as a value. Yeah. And so it was only when some of my undergraduate professors were like, Chris, have you ever thought about graduate school that I thought about it? Yeah, cool. Because nobody had kind of prompted me about that. That's awesome. But then you have to decide what you want to do, right? Um, and so I, I kind of was at a loss at first. Like I moved to Chicago um, and just started doing a bunch of odd jobs, like weird, random stuff. Like I was a ghostwriter for a while. Oh, cool, yeah. Um, where I like impersonated um, uh, executives. Yeah, cool. And I did this like traveling teaching thing. And I think I started to recognize that I really like teaching. Yeah. Mostly because like um, I think I'm inherently a kind of like abstract person. And there's something about teaching that I valued where it, like, made me be practical and concrete mm, in cool. a way that I felt was a useful pressure. Yeah. So I decided at the same time, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to graduate school. I started going to graduate school at University of Chicago. Um, and I studied – I started studying literature and philosophy. Cool. And for me, it was kind of like I was way over my head um, at first. Like, I felt, like, way out of my league. Uh, and I didn't know a lot of the fundamental things I felt like I should know. Mm. But also, I just, like, didn't really vibe with the culture of the institution. Yeah. And so I got my master's there. Um, I took another year off. I, I went back to New Hampshire, where I'm from, and I worked at a nonprofit cool. um, that does, like, medical education at, oh, Dar cool. at Dartmouth. Yeah. That's and awesome. that was – it was, like, a startup. It was very small. I was, like, basically in a storage closet um, with, like, three computers. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is fine, but I don't think this is the rest of my life. Yeah. So I applied to PhD programs, um, decided to go to Berkeley, and it was a long process. I mean, I was I started in 2009, and I officially got my degree in 2017. But, you know, the thing about getting a PhD is that it's really a professionalization process, hmm. and you kind of finish doing most of the coursework early on. Mm, and yeah. a lot of the rest of it is just, like, kind of training you in various ways. Cool. So I, after about my... Well, as soon as I came into Berkeley, I started teaching. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, I started teaching. Uh, at first, I was like TA, and then I started teaching my own classes. And then I was like, okay, I really like teaching. And that's when I started driving out to – I applied to Bard College to teach in their um, – they have this thing called the Language and Thinking Program mm. that they run for freshmen during the summer. Cool, Basically yeah. Basically as like a chance for them all to get together, get to know each other, and then uh, matriculate to the college. Yeah, that's cool. And it's like – it was, like, full of super cool people. Like, yeah. it was, like, they had this premise that, you know, the the way to approach writing is in a kind of fundamentally creative process. So they had, like, filmmakers, visual artists, uh, yeah. more, like, traditional academic people like me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I also am a poet. Totally. And, and I was also writing poetry. So <clears throat> it was really fun for me because I just, like, got to hang out with all these people that were, like, very – expansive with their thinking yeah and i worked there for about five summers um That's so awesome. like i spent wow. a lot of time there in that program i think that program really shaped the way I, the way i teach mm, cool um but at the same time you know you got to start applying for other jobs and man that's been a, a difficult and ongoing process i mean yeah. you know um our family has both of our kids were born in st louis we lived there for we taught at st louis university for three i taught there for three years um, Juliana taught there for a little bit longer. Cool. Um, then we moved to Oregon and I was, we were teaching at two different schools there. Um, and then, you know, this job became available, um, at the honors college and yeah. we jumped on it, um, because, cool. you know, both of us were going to get to teach in the same place. But also, as I mentioned, like I had a pretty formative experience as, as an, uh, in an honors college. Yeah. So, it felt like something I wanted to be a part of. Totally. Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell me more about the work you do at the Honors College and why students should get involved. What the Honors College was for me was a chance to be in kind of smaller classes um, and to get to know um, really serious students from a bunch of different disciplines um, who are all, you know, very committed to being a student, but also were really interested in working on these like more intensive projects. Yeah. And so I think it, it brings in a certain kind of character of, of student where totally. you're both like curious, but also like highly motivated yeah. at the same time. And I think at the U, like my sense of it is that, especially just the physical feel of it, is that it's just huge, right? It's yeah. just enormous and expansive. I felt the same way about Berkeley, honestly. Like when I was there, I was like, it must be really hard to be an undergraduate at Berkeley. Mm, yeah. And I presume similarly here at totally, the U. Yeah. 
And I think the honors college gives you like a just point of focus within totally. that larger institution. And also most of our students are not in the humanities. Mm, that's true. Which yeah. I find interesting. You're, you're obviously an exception. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was great when I found out you're an, you're an English major. Yeah, um, cool. But you know, that's the exception. Yeah. And like we do admissions every year and last year I can tell you that's still true. Um, and what, what I do think it gives students an opportunity to do is like if you're like really focused on biology, right? You're going to get that kind of like curricular structure and focus in your discipline. Yeah. But you're not necessarily going to get pushed to think about the ideas and methods um, and even concepts that you're engaging in biology, like through other disciplinary lenses. Yeah. And so I think that the interdisciplinary character of the Honors College is really important. Because mm. I think like that's like one of the fundamental things that you should get from college. Yeah. It's not just a specialized education, um, but also a sense of how to kind of reflect um, and kind of, um, you know, approach whatever you're learning from a sort of position of sort of self-criticality. Yeah. Uh, because, I, you know, people aren't going to do that necessarily for you and your jobs right. afterwards, right? They're not going to prompt you to like reflect on why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. But I think the Honors College like gives you that as a – kind of structured opportunity. Mm, well said. Yeah, it's. I love the Honors College, and I totally agree with everything you said um, in terms of the interdisciplinary part of it and it being reflective. And yeah, it's a, it's a great spot. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Christopher. It was so great to hear more about your background and, and talk about the Honors College and, and talk about the Great Salt Lake and uh, yeah. the amazing stories of Robert Smithson and Nancy Holt, you know? So, so thank you so much. Thanks, Tom, much. Hello, guys. Uh, we're here with the greatest panel um, of this century, and uh, we're going to do a quick introduction of ourselves. Uh, my name's Talmadge, um, my favorite TV show of all time, and I'd love to hear all of your favorite TV shows as well, um, would have to be Lost. Um, I just think it's such a great show and has so many cool archetypes and character. Like, the character's the best in it. Um, and, yeah, I'm the host of this podcast. That's, pretty, that's me. I'm an English major as well. So... Uh, I'm Connor. Uh, Long-time listeners know I'm a communications major. Yes. Um, and I'm a junior at the U, and I run the Instagram account and uh, the social medias of our stories. Um, and my favorite TV show of all time is The Rehearsal. Door City. I wanted to make a quick announcement if people don't know this, but Connor and Ben are in a band called Door City. Um and it's a great band. I love the stuff that you guys have released and your Instagram and everything about the band. Um, and I saw a post today that there might be a website, like some, a new stuff coming out soon. But the, um, I guess, yeah, it's it's a mystery. But um, the uh, quote, the name Door City was inspired partially um, by the rehearsal, a very good comedy show that you both turned me on to. And I watched the whole season in like two days. Uh, it's really funny. Great, like, dark comedy, like, weird. Like, I don't even know what to say about it, but it's it's great, yeah. My name's Marissa. I'm a freshman this year. I'm mainly doing interviews. I also like to do graphic design. I, think, I don't know if I said I'm majoring in marketing, and I really like documentaries, but a show that I could watch over and over is Outer Banks. We all need to watch it. And thank you for coming on. This is Marissa's first time on the panel and, uh, and the podcast. I'm super excited. My name is Ben. I'm the director of Our Stories. Um, I'm a third year at the U and I'm majoring in game design. My favorite TV show of all time, I'm going to have to go with one of my favorite anime TV shows, uh, Chainsaw Man. I've not seen Chainsaw Man, um, but I do need to get more into anime. Have you seen, uh, what's it called? Neon, we're going to get into the panel in a sec, but have you seen Neon Genesis, how's it pronounced, Evangelion? Evangelion, yeah. Dude, that is a good show. Have you it seen is, that one? It is a very good show, yeah. It gets pretty far out in the last few episodes, but I kind of like that stuff. Yeah, so there's some TV show recommendations if you don't, um, if you aren't busy enough listening to our podcast. Um, but um, yeah, so I want to shoot into, uh, into your guys' thoughts about the interview. Um, what were the biggest things that stuck out to you? regarding Great Salt Lake, art, um, dirt rooms, honors college, etc. I mean, I guess I thought just even relating the Great Salt Lake to art was very interesting because I feel like most people wouldn't even think about how the Great Salt Lake could kind of have an artistic usage and like, like you were saying with your 
on what's called the ground art or land art. Land art. Yeah. So that was really that was really cool to hear him talk. Yeah. About. Yeah, I loved how he pointed out like how the difference of how ancestors viewed the Great Salt Lake versus how we do today. Mm, yeah. Because I remember my grandma moved here. She was from all over the South, and when she came to Utah, like she didn't know how to swim, but she loved how she could float in the Great Salt Lake. There's yeah. like pictures of her floating around in there. So that was that's cool. awesome. How that was such like a bigger landmark, I guess, to her versus to me. I'm like, oh yeah, it's just there. It has kind of lost its um, popularity in that way. I would say, like the recreational part of it, you know. Um, so it's cool to kind of see those photographs and like hear people's stories of like, dude, this was like so cool. Like to like get here, like especially if you're not maybe from Utah to be like, you can float in this. But yeah, yeah. What about you, Connor? Uh, yeah, I thought the most interesting part of the, uh, the discussion was kind of when he referenced that book about the end of nature yeah. um, and how uh, kind of art and uh, nature are kind of interconnected as like we, we got to view art as being part of the ecosystem rather than yeah. just like the work of some genius, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's very interconnected uh, totally. like nature. So this is a very abstract question, but do you guys feel like humans are a part of nature or something that's separate from nature. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about how that's changed over time. Like, um, a long time ago, humans used to be a lot more kind of closely knit with nature because obviously we live in nature. Yeah. Um, but as society has kind of um, moved towards like living closer together in cities yeah. like we kind of separate ourselves off from nature and totally um, build up away from nature um, and then I guess going back to like how you mentioned like you was talking about architecture and yeah. things like that I think um, an interesting thing that I learned about Japanese architecture mm-hmm. is that um a lot of focus of Japanese architects and Japanese design um, in kind of the modern era is trying to use architecture to connect like your home to nature, like mm. making your home feel open to the outdoors. That's you know, cool. It's like shut off, obviously, but yeah, really interesting if you want to learn more about that. Oh, what is this? How do I look more into this? I mean, if you just look up certain architects like Tarao Ando and... Um, so it's like you know names Tado Ando okay cool if you look up like famous Japanese architects most of them kind of focus on that idea of connecting um, architecture with nature oh this is really cool Japan is very progressive in ways that I wouldn't usually like it's not super intuitive to me, but I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you know what I mean? As a yeah. country, like, it seems like um, their culture can oftentimes be very on the cutting edge. Mm. Um, what about you guys? What would you say in terms of humans being connected to nature? Or as an alternative question, um, how humans can connect to nature more? Um, I think the biggest reason why we've, like, unconnected with nature is just our demand of natural resources. That's, like, been a huge thing to drive us to, like, where we are economically. Like, there's just so many factors in that. So, yeah, just taking a step back and, like, realizing how we could do things better environmentally and stuff. Yeah, totally. I think, uh, I don't know, as someone who's just grown up in a, like, suburban house and, like, yeah. raised by the Internet a little bit, it's yeah. it's it's kind of strange, like, how backwards it's been for yeah. a lot of our generation where we grow up. And then we have to, like, find a relationship with nature. Totally. Whereas, like, I don't know, uh, with the development of technology, it's like, you're like, oh, how do we, uh, I don't know, how do we build something that uh, allows us to survive the elements? Yeah. Where with us, it's like, how do we <laughs> escape yeah. Uh, yeah. the concrete? Our, our parents grew up in a time where it was like they would just be kicked out of the house until, like, sunset and they had to come home like they had to. They were just like running around outside all day, but like True. us growing up, it's like we're inside more often, like on our computers or yeah, or whatever. Like, so. I hundred percent agree. I mean, because I grew up in a suburban, I grew up in Cedar Hills and Alpine. I loved a lot of things about them, um, but yeah, suburban areas 
and then on top of that being Gen Z, it's like there is a pretty drastic difference. Like in 2008, that's the year I think when most of humanity um, was living in cities for the first time. So like even that, like what's the other statistic that like I thought was so interesting? Someone was telling me this, that in the 1500s, um, the biggest city in the world was as big as Salt Lake is now. Like, in Shakespeare's time, London was as big as... Like, might, that might not be true. I would look... If I was the audience member, I'd probably check me on that. <laughs> but I think... I, someone was telling me that, and it sounded very interesting, um, just in terms of... Basically, the generalization is that we have grown so much more into an urban species, right? Um, but, yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit to the Great Salt Lake. Um, what are your guys' impressions of the Great Salt Lake? Have you been there before? Um, what do you think about it? Like when you think of the Great Salt Lake in your head, what what what's there? I think personally for me, I I like I grew up in Utah, but I mean my family has never had a tradition where we like go to the Great Salt Lake or anything. Like I've never actually been in the Great Salt Lake, um, but it's it's also kind of a thing like 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 you like it's salty like I don't want to get in like salty water and get covered in salt yeah and it's like there's like I mean it's especially with how much it had gone down it's like you have to walk super far to get to the water and yeah but I think um as a student at the U I've done like I've researched the Great Salt Lake a little bit I had like a I took um exploring the world with Google Earth my first semester and for my cool. final, for my final project in that class, I made um, like a GIS visualization showing like the Great Salt Lake reducing in size with like the satellite data that we have. Mm. Over, wow! Like, since like the seventies, totally. It was crazy how much it's gone down just since then. Yeah. And also, one thing that I've that I haven't like researched a lot about, but I've just like seen, and there's not even that much history about it, is something that. Um, you mentioned earlier was the the salt air mm, yeah like the there used to be like a whole amusement park or whatever and yeah that's right and now it's just completely gone and it's a weird um, place the salt air it's kind of weird to think about that like how that whole thing is just gone oh dang what about you two what would you say you're from utah originally too right yeah okay so what are your guys's um impressions of the great salt lake I don't know, whenever I think of it, I kind of think of Antelope Island. It kind of feels like a fever dream to me. Mm. Know, as a kid, I like I, I knew about it, but like I was like never knew what went on over there. Yeah, something like I've never been in the water. I know a lot of my friends like to go take pictures by like the salt flats. Yeah, it's really popular. But that's really all I know about it. Yeah, yeah, I I like the salt flats a lot. It is They're a fun cool. place to go. You know, picnic and uh, just kind of be in an empty void for a little yeah, bit, take totally. some pictures. Um, place. Yeah. yeah, but in terms of the actual Great Salt Lake, I don't, I, I don't remember the last time I've actually seen the lake. I should take all you guys out there because, like, I've jumped in. I jumped in this last summer, and then um, I also jumped in like a few other times. Like my high school friends really like to go hang out there for some reason. Um, but now I'm like, I'm glad they did, you know. But um, it's a weird place, but I have a newfound appreciation for it. You know, it's pretty fun to jump in. So. Um, I think we should do another podcast on the Great Salt Lake and, like, give our updates on, like, you know, um, having gone there. And um, we could even get another angle about it. Um, but it, it was great to get into the art side of things on this. Um, do you, I don't know. Do you guys have any artists that have, like, inspired you in the past a little bit, just in general? I took, um, while I was studying abroad, I took an art history class. Yeah. And the famous ukiyo-e artist, um, Hokusai. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just like learning about woodblock prints and how they're made is really cool. Um, since cool. artists in general, cool thing is that Van Gogh was like very mm. heavily inspired by Japanese art. Which oh, I, I never knew that. And he's my favorite artist ever. Yeah. So Yeah, you should definitely look in Tengo's uh, influence by Japanese art. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, he, he actually owned a bunch of ukiyo-e. Like, because ukiyo-e was so cheap, it was, like, the only art that he could afford. Cause he was, no way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And uh, also, with yeah. Woodblock, um, an artist I've been inspired by, I've been getting into kind of tattoo artists just as I research oh, getting cool. more tattoos. Yeah, sweet. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty 
pretty into the woodblock style as well, where they like um, shade using lines and kind of it looks like a wood carved type yeah, of style. That's so cool. They have to like physically carve this block to make it look how they want it to. Like it takes so much precision to be able to carve the wood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's that's an, so sick. There's an artist in Salt Lake uh, called. Uh, his name's Ethan T. Okay, cool. Works at a studio called uh, Hellbent Tattoo. Sweet. And, uh, his work is really cool. He's pretty hard to get into, but I'll also check that out. He makes out. a lot of kind of medieval, uh, like woodblock style stuff. It's really Dang. cool, like old English. I didn't even know about woodblock style. I mean, I've considered. Um, I've actually kind of thought about getting a tattoo soon. Maybe not soon, but like at some point, I'd like to get one. Um, so yeah, I'll, maybe I'll, uh, I'll have to look into that woodblock. I like that. Um, now, what about you, Marissa? Artists. I don't know. I don't really pay much attention to art. My life's mostly about music, so whenever I think That's of artists, art, right? I think like music way. I yeah. Don't know, like composers and stuff. Oh, cool. So I guess my answer to this would just be I I've been looking um listening to a lot of jazz recently. Yeah. It's like music to like a whole nother level. Oh yeah. Stuff, so Oh, I love jazz so much. How did you get into jazz? So in high school, I've always done percussion, like drums and everything. Cool. And my junior year, they were like, oh, we're needing another drummer for the jazz band. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And like that entire, I was so bad, but I learned so much about jazz. And like my senior year, I was just able to like thrive on like just jamming out, I guess. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, I'm going to give a link to the whole um, audience to go see the jazz band. I, I need to see it too, right? <laughs> oh, that's that's sick. Um, yeah, well, I think we should probably wrap this up in a minute. But uh, do you guys have any other final thoughts on the episode? I mean, we covered a lot, you know. Um, it was great to hear, like, your guys' thoughts about art in the lake. Um, um, but anything else that's arising in our collective consciousness right now? I kind of just have a strong desire to fill a room with dirt and, like, rake it. it yes, dude. That was so cool to hear about that, actually. Sounds satisfying to just rake some dirt flat. Totally. Need to get in on that. Yeah. It's like some zen garden, but just dirt. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> oh, but he, I mean, he was a really cool guy, and he was very knowledgeable. Um, so yeah. I mean, it'd be cool to take a class from him if you're interested oh, yeah. in anything that he... Because he has, he has a very wide variety of 100%. So... <laughs> Yeah, I did. Um, so I've been doing this honors program, Ecology and Legacy. Um, and so we went to Montana and Argentina for that. And then the, the Utah portion was with Dr. Christopher Miller. So me and Christopher like really hit it off. And like, um, and so, yeah, it was a super cool program. That's, so that's where we did the field trips. But I'd highly recommend to everyone watching um, go join the honors college and go take a class by Christopher Miller. Um, awesome. Uh, yeah. Any other final thoughts? Alrighty. Well, thank you guys for coming on this panel. Um, absolutely wonderful to talk with y'all. And thank you for being a part of the first video podcast um, of Long Story Short. Yes. So let's go Utes, and we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, stay salty. Thank you for listening to Long Story Short, an Our Stories production. Stay tuned for more insightful and potentially life-changing interviews. Cheers. <laughs>